Well, if you'd like to turn, please, to Mark, Mark's Gospel, and we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 8 from verse 31, but we'll read from a verse or two before just to get the context. If you remember, this is a watershed moment in the Gospel. God has opened the eyes of Jesus' followers to see that Jesus really is the Messiah. And this is the first time they publicly confess it. Jesus asks them in verse 29 of Mark 8, but who do you say that I am? You plural, you, you followers. And Peter answered him on their behalf, I think. You are the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? It's the same word as life in the previous verse or two. What can a person give in return for their life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. 
And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now let's pray together. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us listen to the words of your Son, our Lord Jesus, this morning. For his name's sake, amen. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian? I guess most people in this room would call themselves Christian. How has it been since that first time you were happy to take on that label for yourself and not deny it? Has the Christian life been as you expected from the beginning? Victorious, wonderful, or maybe not quite as easy as you thought it would be or were told it would be? What is Christ's call on his followers? What shape is the Christian life? Well, Jesus says to us through these verses, in a nutshell, come die with me. Then come share my glory. Now, we've reached a watershed moment in Mark's account, a, a light bulb moment when Jesus' closest followers confess finally, publicly, that they're convinced that he is the Messiah, the Christ the promised king who would deliver his people. So, there it is in chapter 8, verse 29. What do you say? You are the Christ. Let the party begin. Not so. Verse 30, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And yet, he goes on and doesn't just tell them to keep quiet. He begins to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man, this is now his, his favored way of describing himself, rooted in Daniel 7. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. There was no mistaking what he was saying. There was no room for misunderstanding here. And it was a complete shock to his followers. They had a totally different understanding of what the Messiah would do and be. Peter, the leader, does what he feels needs to be done. Uh, Jesus, I, I wonder if we could have a word in, in private. As one writer puts it, Peter felt it necessary to correct Jesus' bizarre view of the messianic role and takes the misguided zealot to one side to prevent any more embarrassing outbursts. But Jesus' rebuke of Peter could not be sharper. Verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples. We're not quite sure what the seeing his disciples means. Maybe I think probably that they're all in the same boat. They're all thinking, yeah, Peter's absolutely right. Jesus needs a word. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Wow. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, you are doing the devil's work at this point. Now, Peter might have been granted to see enough 
to say, you are the Christ. But it was only as good as seeing people like trees walking around. We have our tree still up with us. It's not walking around at the moment, but um, it's in one place. So if you were here last week, you'll remember, I hope, the children's talk. He can only half see, as it were. He needs another touch to his spiritual sight to see clearly what it truly means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Every generation needs to see clearly two things about Jesus and what it means to follow him. Here they are. Number one, that the path to glory is the path of suffering. Chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. The path to glory is the path of suffering. Jesus began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man must, must suffer many things. This is an absolute necessity he's teaching. Now, why Jesus and Mark, recording what Jesus says here, doesn't make clear at this point. But we don't have to read too far before, flick over a page, before we get to Matthew, oh, sorry, even Mark, uh, chapter 10, verse 45. Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. How? To give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, the cross of Christ is the necessary price of freedom. If we want to be set free, it's the cross of Christ that's going to do it. It's absolutely necessary that he suffer. Someone was telling me recently that they, what brought them over the line to a real personal living faith from being just, if you like, a God-fearer, someone who, yeah, believed that God existed and, and all that, was when they came to realize that the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was not just a great victory over, over death, which it is, but that Jesus died for their sin and that it was absolutely necessary. This was the only hope they had in the face of God was that Jesus died for their sin. Even though Peter clearly doesn't get it here in Mark chapter 8, years later he writes in his first letter these words, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous, people like us, to bring us to God safely into his holy presence. There's no other way. The Son of Man must suffer. And the cross of Christ is not only the price of freedom, it is the pattern of following. There is no other path if we're going to be followers of this Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 34, Jesus called the crowd to him with his disciples and said to them, if anyone, which includes you and me, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their life, forfeit their life? What can a person give in return for their life? Now, if you go back in a time machine and land yourself on a street somewhere in a city in the Roman Empire, 
and you see someone coming along the street and they're carrying this great big beam on their shoulders. And someone tells you that this is, this is the cross beam of a cross on which the Romans execute people by, by crucifixion. Apparently they would leave the uprights permanently in place, in the place of executions, and they put the crossbow on the shoulders of the convicted criminal. And that criminal was forced to walk through the streets to the place of execution. It was the start of their public humiliation. But you knew exactly what was happening and where they were going. And Jesus says, shockingly, this is the route I'm choosing to take. And equally shockingly, maybe, if you want to follow me, you have to come down the same road, doing the same thing, carrying your cross. You have to say no to yourself, denying yourself. That's what denying means. It means saying no. So if someone says to you, uh, I saw you in the street in Richmond yesterday. You think, I wasn't there. You say, no, no, that wasn't me. You deny it. Just say no. But of course, this is a much bigger thing than just denying you were in a particular place at a particular time. This is saying no to yourself, not just to particular things, and saying yes to your death. That's what taking up the cross is. You say no to yourself and yes to your death. And you say, well, would anyone in their right mind do that? Well, it depends if you've done the sums, if you've done your calculations. Have you done them? Look at verses 35 and follow. Have you calculated what it would cost you to hang on to this life with all its rewards of money and status and pleasure and the rest? Because if you do that, what's going to happen in the end? Verse 35, whoever would save their life will lose it. You're going to lose everything in the end. The alternative Second half of verse 35 is that if you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, what will happen? You will save it. Do the sums. You can sacrifice your desire for all these things, for money, status, and pleasure. You can sacrifice your desire to be a self-determining individual. And what happens? You end up saving your life. Now, note two things before we pass on. Verse 35, it is to do with Jesus and the gospel. Do you see, whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospels, not just for my sake, it's and the gospels. In other words, Jesus is making clear that the price that we are asked to pay if we want to follow Jesus cannot be separated from the message, the good news message of Christ crucified, the necessity of the cross for the forgiveness of sin. The fact that there is a judgment, there is a God, and we will all stand before him, and we need to have our sins forgiven. It's not just, you see, a matter of growing to be like Jesus in character. That's important. That's really important. But it's also about spreading a message, a message that is considered in our culture increasingly to be weak and stupid, if not downright immoral, by the gatekeepers of our culture. So that list in verse 31 of the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, that, that's, the, that's the equivalent of the nobility, the, the religious hierarchy, the, the academic elite. What's their view of, of Jesus? Well, he's wrong. It's the politest way of putting it. 
And so when we stand for him and his gospel message, if we stand for his truth, and you see it again in verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. We can't separate Jesus from his teaching. So when we find in the scripture the teaching of Jesus on things like marriage, and we stick to our guns and we say, no, we believe that marriage is just between a man and a woman, our culture machine guns us. I don't know if you've been following the, um, what's the saga of the Anglican denomination this last week or two with their bishops basically fudging it. Um, and of course, those who within that denomination are brothers and sisters who are clear on the Bible and the teaching, they're utterly disappointed by this compromise of the Anglican bishops. That's their response. I've, I've read stuff, I've seen podcasts which make that very clear in the last week or two. But read the secular press take on it, and it is completely the opposite. They think the fudge, the compromise, doesn't go far enough. They're castigating the bishops because they won't just endorse same-sex marriage. No, there is a cost involved in sticking to the teaching of Scripture, the words of Jesus as recorded in the Bible. And of course, the temptation that Jesus alludes to there in verse 38, and this is the other thing that we need to notice before we move on, is that the temptation is to be ashamed of Christ and his words. And really the acid test, isn't it, is when we can feel the scorn rising, the eyebrows flicking up. <laughs> you don't really believe that, do you? Are we going to hold our nerve and speak without shame of the suffering and rejection of our Lord and Savior, of his clear teaching on moral matters, as well as supremely on matters of salvation? It's a challenge to all of us who claim to be Christians, isn't it? One of the things it's made me do, just, even just this week thinking about it, is, is to decide to be a bit more courageous in speaking of the Lord Jesus whenever there is an opening in conversation. I found myself around a table after tennis yesterday afternoon with some friends watching the rugby, and uh, well done Scotland, by the way. And um, And I got an opening because I explained to one of my regular tennis partners that, that I was going to be leaving in the summer, and he then started to talk about how important faith was and things like that. He's Muslim background, Asian, and um, how he'd gone to church occasionally, and I just decided I'd just give him a, a short blast. <laughs> no, that's the wrong word. I just said, what a privilege it is to be someone whose job entails telling people the great news about Jesus, the Savior of the world, and the hope for the future. And then just leave it with him. But I thought, no, don't, don't just fudge it, John. Say what you really believe, even if it's just very short. So we need courage not to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus. There's no doubt there is there, if you look at verse 38, that Jesus has in mind the path to glory. Verse 38, when the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. But his followers need to know that the path to glory is the path of suffering. But he also wants us to know, a little more briefly, secondly, that the path of suffering is the path to glory. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, the path of suffering is the path to glory. Look where it's going. 
you ask the question, is it really worth following Christ down the path of suffering, the stigma that we're going to face when we actually say what we believe? I mean, you could gain so much in this world, couldn't you? You sometimes see, I saw a fabulous Bentley this week. I thought, wow, imagine driving that. Had that throaty roar, you know, wonderful. I sort of pressed the accelerator in the Yaris. It doesn't quite sound the same. But, um, you know, are you willing to, to sacrifice the things of this world? Because you know that actually the road to the path of suffering is the path to glory. That's where it's heading. Jesus has something really important to say there in verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. That truly, amen, in the, in the Aramaic. I, he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here, he's looking at his followers there, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. Now, I don't know what they thought at that moment. Okay, well, which of us is it? There's 12 of us standing here with him. I wonder, I wonder who it is. I wonder how soon it will be. It's going to be before they taste death. Hmm, how long are we going to live? Well, Mark puts us out of our misery. Next verse, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. I think that's the natural way to understand it, that, that here is the fulfillment. Here are the three, the some who are standing, just the three of them, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power because they're about to see this extraordinary transfiguration of Jesus up the high mountain, verse 2. He is literally metamorphosed. That's the Greek word. His clothes become radiant, intensely white. As we saw earlier, Matthew says his face shone like the sun. And presumably they had to shield their eyes. It was so bright. And there were Moses and Elijah, probably those who are associated with the coming of the Messiah in the end times. So it's kind of, wow, this is end time stuff. The Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. So it's reinforcing what they've just confessed, these followers of Jesus. And then the cloud comes down and they're wrapped in this cloud like a, like a mist on a Scottish mountain. I've got to get my own back somehow. Um, and a voice booms from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. If he says he must die, he must die. He remains my beloved son through the agony of his sufferings. If he says, if you're going to follow him, you must be prepared to give up your life for him and his message. Then that is the case. But it's not the end of the story. Suffering is not the end. Surely that is one of the key things in this transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are given a glimpse of glory. As Peter wrote in his letter many years later, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. We heard, we saw. Well, I guess the question for us is, do we believe that? I wonder if the reason we didn't have time to read it, but the next chunk from verse, well, 9 really through to 29, 
particularly verse 14 onwards, records a real failure on the part of the disciples. And I wonder if it's to underline the fact that faith back down here, not at the top of the mountain, but back down here in the valley where most of us live most of the time in normal human experience, faith can be a struggle sometimes. Now, the great evidence of faith, of course, is prayer. Verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Prayer is the great expression and evidence of faith because it's a mark of dependence. I mean, why bother to pray if you can manage on your own? But we're not going to cope with suffering on our own. We're not going to make it to glory on our own. Now, this transfiguration, well, do you think it really happened? Maybe you wonder. Maybe you wonder if God is really able to deliver on his promises of forgiveness, whether Jesus' death really does deal with our sins, whether there is going to be a restoration of our entire universe at the end of time. I mean, it's 2,000 years since Jesus came and said that. And the world just seems to limp on in its brokenness with wars and rumors of war. And faith is often a struggle. And we have to say with the father of the boy in verse 24, I believe, help my unbelief. But the key thing about faith is not how strong it is, but where it's placed. You can have immensely strong faith in a false hope, and it's useless. Like self-reliance, if you want to rely on yourself, you can really believe that's the way to live, but you're completely deluded. You're wrong. You can have faith in any religious leader or system bar Jesus, but you're misled. So it doesn't matter how strong your faith is. But feeble faith in the true Savior of the world is more than enough to save you. And however feeble our faith in Jesus is, however hard we find our lives to be as we refuse to budge from Jesus' teaching, however unpopular. The path of suffering for Jesus is the road to glory with Jesus. So what shape is the Christian life? It is cross-shaped. What is Christ's call on his followers? Jesus says, come, die with me, then come share my glory. Let's pray. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Father, we thank you for what Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain. Thank you that one day we shall see Jesus in his glory. We pray that none of us would fail to follow him down that road, the road he took, the road of suffering, to die for our sins. 
the road he calls us to follow down. We ask for your grace to help us to do just that. For his name's sake, amen.